Thank you so much. Good morning. Do you think we should have that music playing whilst I preach, just to inspire you even more? Or we should have a piano player. Should we do that? No, I'm joking. Let's not do that. Maybe another time. Uh, well, good morning. Welcome. Great to have you here. Uh, particular welcome if you're a visitor. Really, really great to have you here with us. Um, this, of course, is Valentine's week. Hope, hope it's been a good one. I got a card and a rice pudding. So, because as we all know, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. So, I particularly was grateful for that. Um, and uh, the, the, the best Valentine's fail I saw on, uh, online this week was a husband who thought he'd bought some daffodil stems for his wife and put them in a vase and they turned out to be asparagus instead, <laughs> which I particularly liked because it's the sort of thing that I would do. So uh, that tickled me that. So I hope you've had a good week. And uh, if you have got a Bible, you might like to turn to Acts in chapter 11. And uh, we are continuing our series in the book of Acts, uh, which if you were around before Christmas, uh, you would have been here for some messages on uh, this book. The, the book of Acts is definitely among my favorite books of the whole Bible because it's 28 dynamite-packed chapters of how God can change the world in one generation. And so if you want to get inspired and fill your life with a God expectation of what's possible, read the book of Acts. It's an amazing, amazing book. And uh, we are going to, in this part of the year, look at what happens when the news about Jesus' resurrection starts to spill out just of Jerusalem and into the known world at the time. And the story that we're going to read today is so shocking and stunning that the man to whom it happened has to give an account for what happened. And chapter 11 is a summary of what happens in chapter 10. And so we're going to read the summary in chapter 11 as Peter, who's one of the early apostles, disciples of Jesus, is called in before all his friends to give an account for what had just taken place in his life. And it is a truly stunning moment. So we are going to read in Acts chapter 11, and the words will come up on the screen. So we read this. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of an uncircumcised man and ate with him. Now, just to pause there, it was against Jewish law to even enter the house of a non-Jew. Peter is a Jewish man. He's entered the house of Cornelius, who's not only a Jew, he is a Roman soldier, non-Jew. <laughs> so there are three reasons not to go to this man's house, and yet Peter has, and now he's got to give an account for it. So starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. He said, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheep being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked at it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, birds. How many of you had a dream like that last night? Some of you. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. They had very strict food laws. He's thinking, I, I, I couldn't touch these animals, Lord. I wouldn't do that. But the voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God 
has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who'd been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at a house where I was staying, and the Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. That man's name was Cornelius. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who's also called Peter. I know that's confusing. That he will bring you a message through which you and your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he'd come on us at the very beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John will baptize with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he has given us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? And so when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is an amazing, game-changing moment in the history of Christianity. The reason that you are mostly non-Jewish people listening to this message this morning is because Peter went against everything that his Jewish tradition was screaming at him to do, and he entered the house of a non-Jewish man to tell him about Jesus. And this is a total game-changer. This is the moment where Jesus goes global. Okay, up to now, Jesus had been pretty much within the four walls of Jerusalem, the Jewish community, the Jewish disciples. And yet from this moment, the gospel starts to spread right across the Roman Empire uh, that was known at the, at the time. And uh, Peter really is a pioneer in this moment. He's a, a gatekeeper, a gate opener. He's opening a doorway to a new moment in God. And right at the heart of this encounter are two men who are found praying. One of them is Peter, and if you read Acts 10, the other was Cornelius, this Roman centurion who was praying. He didn't even really know who he was praying to yet, but he was praying. He was asking for God to come to his household. And the fact that God chooses this epoch-defining moment around two men who'd made a decision to pray is not incidental, it's fundamental. Because God changes history through prayer. He shapes history through prayer. That's how he has always done it. He shapes history through people who make a decision to call on the name of the Lord. What Simon referenced earlier, 2 Chronicles 7 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will hear their prayers and heal their land. There's a big if at the start of that verse. If my people... We'll come and pray. And so there is an invitation for us as we read this story to enter the world of a Peter who learned what it was to prioritize prayer and from it see an explosion of the grace of God. And I would say houses of prayer have five areas of focus. There's probably more than that, but five. And I want us to see these in this story together. Presence, prayer, mission, justice, and joy. That's what a house of prayer really looks like. So let's start with presence. So Peter says, listen, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. This place of prayer actually first and foremost was an encounter with a father. 
And this is the first hallmark of people who pray and a house that prays together, is the focus isn't just on asking God for stuff. It's actually we love his presence. We love to be with him. That's, that's the heart and the root of a house of prayer, is that our souls long for him. Our souls cry, Abba, Father, I just want to be with you. And the truth is, if that's not the heart motivation of prayer, you probably won't want to pray very much. That's why Jesus said, listen, when you pray, say, Abba, Father, my Father who is in heaven. That's why Jesus, when he was clearing out the temple, he says, listen, my Father's house will be called a house of prayer. It's somebody's house, a Father, your heavenly Father. Ultimately, houses of prayer are about his presence. That's why men like David can say, listen, my soul longs for you. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to dwell in your courts all the days of my life. When can I come and meet with you, Lord? In a house of prayer, that is the heartbeat. It's the drumbeat behind everything we do. God, I just want to get where you are. I want to be in your courts. It's about who's your father. And for Peter, he has this game-changing moment from an encounter in the presence of God as he's praying. He sees his father speaking to him. And this is absolutely critical. And, you know, sometimes I think one of the things that stops us from praying is that we feel like we don't know how to pray. I think some of us think, well, you know, I don't really know what words to say. Other people seem to know so much. They know their Bibles better than I do. And, you know, I can't really string many prayer sentences together and prayer meetings. I don't know. I don't know if that's my thing. Listen, it's less important that you know how to pray than that you want to pray. (laughs) Some of you here have already kind of disqualified yourself from being a prayer because you think, I'm just not quite sure how to start. But listen, what's more important is deep in your guts, you've got a desire to be with Abba Father. <laughs> That's where it starts. Because you were born to be with him. That is the river running under a house of prayer. It's relational. It's family. And you know, the very first prayer meeting in the Bible is in the first book of the Bible, Genesis where Adam and Eve are walking with God in the cool of the day. That's the first prayer meeting. And you know, I don't think there was much contending going on. You know, I don't think there were many shopping lists. You know, God, please do this. Please, you know, look after my granny and break through here. And I don't think there was much of that going on. I think it was, God, this world you've created is so breathtaking, so beautiful. You are so stunning. I cannot take my eyes off who you are. Wow, a strawberry, a giraffe, an elephant. This is amazing. This, this is what prayer looked like. The very first prayer meeting is about being with the Father in the cool of the day. It's about His glory, intimacy, proximity, drawing close. That's how it starts. And maybe, just maybe, if you don't have a desire to pray, you don't have a desire to be with the Father. Maybe if the presenting symptom in, in your life is, well, I just actually don't, I'm not really bothered about prayer. If that's the presenting symptom, it's a symptom of a deeper lying issue, which is this. You were born to know a father who is extravagantly good, who's extravagantly kind, who's better than you realize. And if you've got the wrong father in your head, the likelihood is you won't want to pray. <laughs> who's your daddy? <laughs> it starts with that. What's he like? Because when you catch a glimpse of, wow, 
you are a good, good father, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, swift to bless. Oh, man, you want to be with that kind of father. (laughs) You want to be in that father's presence whenever the opportunity affords you. It's about presence. And as we know, when you prioritize his presence, you get far more done by accident than ever you did on purpose. You know, God goes to work in our behalf when we prioritize his presence. But the second characteristic of a house of prayer, probably very obviously, is prayer. Okay, in a house of prayer, people pray. They don't just talk about praying. They don't just talk to other people about praying. They actually pray. They spend time talking to Jesus. They come to him. They pray. They spend time prioritizing prayer in their own lives and together. And again, Peter here, he's found in prayer. He says, listen, I was in the city of Joppa praying. Cornelius, likewise, if you read the equivalent chapter in chapter 10, Cornelius is praying. And the angel says, Cornelius, I've heard your prayers. Prayer was right at the heart of this game-changing moment. And again, this is how God does it throughout history. He stirs God's people to pray, to seek his face. I remember as a 15-year-old, we had this moment in the church where I was growing up where suddenly there was this kind of pregnant longing for revival amongst a lot of my friends and it, I remember one night, it got so powerful after a Friday night, we'd been at a youth meeting that one of me and one of my best friends, we just said to each other, we, we just got to go and pray for revival. You know, youth finished at 10 and we're like, Let's, we just got to go and seek God and pray for his spirit to come on our school. And, and we went to the same school together. And so we did. We went to his house and we prayed into the early hours of the morning because we just suddenly felt burdened by a desire to seek the face of God. And from that moment, we began to fast every Thursday at school. And we would pray at the, in the woods at the end of our Catholic school. We weren't really allowed officially to have a church prayer meeting. So we used to sneak down the woods and, and pray. That was about as rebellious as I ever got. And uh, we, we'd go down there and we'd, we'd pray. And we'd say, Jesus, come, break into our school. I had a very sheltered life. Um, and, um, but we were just kind of gripped by this. God, you, you said you'd come if we humbled ourselves and prayed. And it was very soon after that that what I probably, the closest thing I've ever experienced to revival hit just over a three-month period in a little youth group. We went from 60 to 100 people in three months. And, and scores of guys from some of the roughest estates where we were living just started to come to Christ. I was breathtaking. Kids were having angelic visitations, and God was moving in just this spectacular way. Um, one of my friends, it was a very, very shy guy. Uh, he had this encounter with God where for four hours he lay on the floor pro- prophesying about events that would unfold across the world. He was 15, <laughs> and he began to prophesy that the Berlin Wall in Germany would come down. He began to prophesy about Bibles flooding into China and about revival breaking out across that nation. He started to name people and tell them where they were going to move to later in life. I mean, it was like stunning. Four hours just just pouring out prophecy. I mean, it was like an incredible three months. How does God change history? By stirring his people to pray. By calling on the name of the Lord. If my people, if, if, if my people will humble themselves and pray, I will heal their land. Because unseen realities are always affected by your unseen priorities. 
Did you know that? There is a connection between what you choose to do in secret and what happens in the spiritual atmosphere around your life. Because you're not just a material being, you are a spiritual being. Which means the spiritual decisions that you make when you're watching TV or browsing the internet or deciding what to do with your free time, deciding should I pray, shouldn't I, what shall I do with my life, should I read the Bible, shouldn't I, those unseen decisions affect unseen realities. That's why Jesus said, listen, when you pray, you should go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do you see the connection? The Father will reward you because he sees what's done in the secret place. Jesus says, when, when you give, give secretly so that no one else knows what you're giving. Why? Because that affects unseen realities. Have you ever wondered why some people's prayers seem to have more authority than others? Just going to leave that hanging. <laughs> unseen realities are affected by your unseen priorities. And that's why you can sometimes use the right methods and even use the right name, but not get the right results. Because unseen realities know the difference between people who are actually walking with God in secret and those who aren't. It's about spiritual authority. I read this brilliant story this week by, about a guy called James Matheson, and he was a Highland prayer warrior in Scotland. <laughs> Any Scots in the house? There you go. Good man. Good man. And uh, he, lived, um, he lived during the Crimean War, and he didn't go to war because he was too old, but he set himself every day to pray for all of the, the villages and townsfolk from his village to be protected by God while they were in the Crimean War fighting in the British Army. And uh, every day he would pray. Sometimes he would pray all night for the people in his village who were away at war. And a remarkable thing happened um, in the the soldiers in his town who were far away, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, said that each night they saw this mysterious figure appear on the war ground where they were and would walk amongst the troops, hovering their hand over their heads. And many of them dismissed it as, gosh, we're just overtired, we're hallucinating, we're seeing things. Like They just kind of dismissed it, most of them, until they went home and... Once the war had ended and they'd gone back home to their, their hometown, they went to a communion service in their hometown church, and James Matheson walked in the back of the room, and every single soldier recognized him as the man who'd walked on the battlefields <laughs> while they'd been in Crimea. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and it was said about James Matheson, the place he would pray was down by the river, and he prayed so hard and so long that he wore grooves in the ground where he knelt down to pray all night. And years after his death, he could still see the groove marks in the soil where he bent down to pray for his townsfolk. Your unseen priorities affect unseen realities. That's how it works. And you know, my three tips for you about prayer are to keep it simple, keep it real, and to keep it up. Okay? You don't need to use lots of words to pray. Jesus says, you'll not be heard because of your many words. So religious people like to use lots of words, often to impress other people. But Jesus, when you pray, just pray from your heart. Just keep it simple. Talk to God like you would talk to a friend. You don't need to use lots of these and thous. Just talk to him. Keep it simple. Secondly, keep it real. He's interested in your heart. 
Aren't you glad the book of Psalms is in the Bible? Those are some heart prayers right there. God, where are you? Please show up. Have you forgotten me? They're heart prayers. You're keeping it real. God wants you to be real because he knows it anyway. And thirdly, keep it up. Just keep going. Keep going. Scripture, for good reason, says we should pray and not give up. You know, I think prayers are a little bit like dominoes. Sometimes you're not quite sure which prayer is going to set the chain reaction that's going to knock them all down. <laughs> and sometimes prayer is just the process. Oh, I'm going to stick another domino. Boom. Right, I'm going to stick another one in. Boom. And another one. Boom. But, you know, there will come a moment where God just flicks that last domino. Brrr, and breakthrough suddenly starts to come. So don't give up. Keep it simple, keep it real, and keep it going. Thirdly, Mission. One of the things I love about this story is that Peter doesn't just have an encounter with the Father, and he doesn't just go up in his rooftop to pray. He goes. He actually does something. And he understands something about prayer, that prayer is not just contemplation, it's action. Houses of prayer are places where stuff actually gets done. Do you know, we often tell the story about Moses when the Israelites were fighting the Amalekites. You know the story where Moses' arms have to be lifted up? by his boys. They have to have a boy other side lifting his arms. And as long as his arms are up high, then the army down the valley is winning. But when he drops his hands in prayer, they start losing. We often focus on Moses' arms, but how many of you know he also needed troops in the valley? <laughs> he needed some guys with swords and sticks and stuff who knew how to fight. It was the combination between prayer and action that actually was so powerful. And for Peter, he could easily have stayed on his rooftop praying, having a great encounter with God, but not actually have said yes to going. How many of you know that sometimes you are the best answer to your own prayers? <laughs> uh, and that maybe wasn't good news for you, because now you're thinking of the things that you've been praying recently. You are sometimes the answer to your best prayers. <laughs> You know, and for Peter, this was, again, all of his Jewish tradition was screaming against him saying yes to God's request. It was against the law to enter a Gentile house. And this was a Roman soldier, Gentile. And yet he says yes. See, there is a promise of fruit bearing when you say yes to go to your own prayers. Jesus says in John 15, I have appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And I think there has to be in all of us a heart posture that is willing to say yes to the prayers that we pray. You know, I had this thought this week that I almost wish I hadn't had. And it was this, that if you're not willing to go for the thing that you've just asked God for, you've just turned prayer into a religious ritual. I wish I hadn't had that thought, but I think it's true. If there's not a part in me that is willing to say yes, then haven't I just gone through a religious ritual? That there's something in here that should be willing to say, God, if you want me to go, then I will. Because so often we're saying, God, will you break into my workplace? And he's like, I, I will. That's why I put you there. <laughs> you know? I think we might get to heaven and say, God, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed for someone to talk to my family about Jesus. And I think for some of us, he's going to say, 
well, that's why you're part of that family. <laughs> I gave you an answer to your prayer. <laughs> Mission is part of being a house of prayer. The poem of St. Teresa of Avila, she said this, Christ has no body on earth but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which the compassion of Christ must look out on the world. See, when Isaiah in Isaiah 6 has this encounter with God, he sees God high and lifted up in, in, in his holiness and majesty, and he's undone. What's the very first question Isaiah then responds with? God, send me? Because when you've seen God in the place of prayer, the natural response is, send me wherever you want me to go. Send me to my family, to my neighborhood, to my workplace, to young people, to another nation. Send me, send me, send me. Send me. I am here. I am at your disposal. He's already given you a promise. Go and you'll bear fruit. <laughs> you need a special commission to stay. <laughs> He's given you standing orders to go. <laughs> go and bear fruit. Lastly, fourthly, sorry, justice. Again, this shows up really strongly in this story and it doesn't perhaps come through in Peter's summary in chapter 11, but... In chapter 10, what we discover about Cornelius, this Roman centurion, is that he had a passion for the poor. This is what we read in chapter 10 about Cornelius, verse 2. It says, He was a devout man who feared God with all his household, and he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly a vision of an angel of God come to him and say, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. It's not only Cornelius' prayers that are heard by God. It's his giving to the poor. Do you see that? It's not just the prayers he's praying. It's the care he's giving for the poor. Both are heard by God. Both are recognized as a memorial before God. And again, a key part of us being a house of prayer is that we are willing to go to the most broken, to the most in pain, to the ones who have least. That's what it means to be a house of prayer, to have a passion for justice, to have a passion for mercy. Pete Gregg says this, says, God grieves for the lonely elderly, for the girls in Bangkok bars with numbers on their dresses. For the mother who woke this morning in a refugee camp without food for her children. For the father in the city taking antidepressants with his cup of tea. The Messiah is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep in comfort to find the one that is in peril. His eyes scan the earth relentlessly, looking for those true disciples who are willing to share abundantly in his sufferings. I wonder, are we willing to share abundantly in Christ's sufferings? I've been so convicted by this verse this week. Because <laughs> in all honesty, I think I used to do better on this than I am right now. I feel like there's something that needs to change in my own heart. That if I want to be part of a house of prayer and a movement of prayer, what goes along with that is a passion for the broken. A passion for the poor. That's part of it. It goes with the territory. That's why... 
Why God, in, in Isaiah 58, he says, listen, is, this not, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the bonds of iniquity, to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry? Then will your light break forth like the dawn and your justice like the noonday sun. There's a connection. Sometimes God says, listen, stop praying and start caring. <laughs> you know, the Israelites were busy praying, but they weren't caring. And God says, actually, your prayers don't mean anything unless they're backed up by a heart of the Father's mercy for the broken. This is the kind of fasting. It's prayer with mercy, with action, and not just giving to other people who care for the poor. That is so often a Western cop-out that we pay somebody else to care for the poor. Now, that's part of it. I believe that's a responsibility for us to help fund mission to the poor. I hope that all of us have a passion for that, even our own finances to give to those that are working among the poor. That is so important, but it's not the only answer. There is something about me and my household. How are we going to show mercy and justice and hospitality to the stranger? How are we going to open our home to the most broken where it hurts and it's uncomfortable? How is, where is that happening in your life right now? This is the kind of fasting that God's chosen. Clothe the naked, feed the hungry, release the oppressed, untie the yoke of oppression. I've been reading about the work of 24-7 prayer teams in Ibiza. And my favorite story is about the guys who drive the vomit van around the streets of Ibiza. And they drive around at night in their vomit van, which has got its name for obvious reasons, basically looking to rescue people who have overdosed, who are vulnerable, or who've lost their possessions, or have no way of getting home. And they're literally there to try and mop up, sweep up those who are most vulnerable in that moment and see an incredible God encounters in that moment. How many of you know those, those kind of decisions? That's costly. That's not comfortable. That is sharing abundantly in the sufferings of Christ when you decide to get amongst the broken and the hurting and the needy. I remember for us, we, we had... A lady come and live with us for three months, and she was an asylum seeker, and she had left her, her home where she'd seen most of her family murdered in front of her own eyes. She was traumatized. She could hardly speak any English. I'll be honest, that three months was incredibly difficult. Our, our kids used to run away when she came in the house. They were very small at the time. And we wondered, why are they running away? And we realized when we weren't in the house, she was making them bow down to her because that was her culture. And so our kids got scared. And so we had all sorts of cultural issues that we had to work through in our house. It was costly, but a costly privilege. Another girl who came and lived with us, we, we got a call from a friend to come to her house about midnight. And we went round and her friend that, who was known to us was about to sell herself into the pornography industry to fund her drug habit. And a friend had called us and said, please, can you help? And so we chatted to this girl and we said, listen, come and, come and live with us. And we flushed her drugs down the toilet and she came and lived with us. And it was costly. Our kids were small. I, I remember the day when we were chatting to her one day and we said, what do you spend your time doing in your room? And she said, well, I've just got this fascination with committing the perfect murder. 
I'm like, okay. I feel a bit out of my depth right now. Jesus, please help. Sharing abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, where do you find that? You find it amongst the broken. You find it amongst those who need help. They need a savior. And God's answer is through you. So often not God who turns his ears away from the cries of the poor, it's us. And a house of prayer means having a passion for justice and a passion for mercy and a passion for the Father's heart amongst those who desperately need it. And then lastly, coming in for a landing, joy. <laughs> joy. Joy. Isaiah 56 says, I will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. And, you know, Jesus only had three years of public ministry to save the entire world, and yet he still found time for picnics and parties and lots of laughter. And I think that's a pretty tight schedule, isn't it? To save the world in three years. You think your schedule's packed. Well, that was Jesus' schedule. Save the world in three years. And yet he still had time to hang out, to make friends, to celebrate, to cook on the beach, to have picnics and parties, to make friends. Why? Because a house of prayer is meant to be full of joy and gratitude and laughter and thanksgiving and friendship and real connection with one another. I will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. Let me tell you, there is no greater joy than when you learn to go on a journey of prayer with your father and you see him do unspeakable and incredible things around you. This was a game-changing moment. God wants to do it again in our nation, in our day, in our town, in our villages. I wonder if we can give ourselves this year to say, I want to be part of that house of prayer. I just don't just want to talk about praying and I don't want to tell stories about other people praying. I want to be a prayer. I'm going to learn how to keep it simple, keep it real, and keep it going. Why don't we stand? Let's pray.